the writing is on the wall that the next step of Hacker Noon needs to be its own software. People telling their own stories. We want to level that up by about 100x and let the rich people deciding what stories should trend try and slow that down. Where we're at in the landscape is we're not trying to break news. We're trying to get experts to amplify their voice. So when people are doing cool things in technology, research papers at Stanford, for example, yeah. like that's an interesting thing for us to republish and get very smart people who are building related things to read. If I just enter the community as Hacker Noon, people just follow. You try 50 things, so one works. Hacker Noon was the thing that worked. I think the young entrepreneurs are better off publishing something small each day than trying to spend two weeks getting in the BBC or CNET or whoever their target is. How do I reduce the barriers for me to get something out each day? And each day I can share more of my story and my ideas, and that will attract more people that are interested in those ideas too. I'm Derek Bernard, producer of the Hacker Noon podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today, Hacker Noon CEO David Smook sits down with Amber Cazell, two Zs, two Ls of the Cazell Report. You can find her podcast at www.cazellreport.com slash podcast. In this episode, David and Amber discuss centralized, decentralized, and independent media. David shares his insights and experiences taking a startup from conception to successful business in the digital publication space, as well as the decisions that motivated the move from Medium to developing Hacker Noon's own platform. This episode gives a glimpse of the heading of Hacker Noon. Check it out. Greetings, hackers. We at Hacker Noon are continually thinking of ways of showing our appreciation for you, our community. Enter the Noonies. The tech industry's greenest awards. Cast your vote in Hacker Noon's first annual Noonies at noonies.hackernoon.com, where everything's democratic and your votes are the only things that matter. Voting closes on July 31st and winners will be announced on August 5th. Vote for Hacker of the Year, Most Exciting Startup, Contributing Writer of the Year in every major category. The list goes on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Stay tuned to noonies.hackernoon.com for the results and remember, you are Hacker Noon. I'm here with David Smook, the founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, which is an independent publication on tech news, and it is getting a lot of viewers each month, about one million, right? One, uh, one to two million people. One to two million. million page views. Wow, that's, that's a lot. That's really cool. Yeah, it's funny to think about them in one room, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's past the point where I can even really imagine it. Um, so that must feel really good. How long have you been working on Hacker Noon for? Well, I've been working on this company for over three years now. Okay. So it's been, uh, Hacker Noon itself started January 2016 um, as the Hacker Daily, and then it became Hacker Noon in April 2016. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of the path we took to, you know, making it a safe place for people to publish. That's incredibly fast for that many users. Or it at doesn't least feel so. like it every day. You know, you just keep working on it, and then suddenly three years pass, and you're a little grayer, a little, little more wrinkles. <laughs> yeah. So um, did this start as, like, a side hustle, or was it always intentional to have this be, like, It was definitely a side thing? hustle. Oh, yeah. So okay. it was, the original company was actually called ArtMap, Inc., and we were a marketing service for startups, and we would tell the story of startups, and my goal was really just to work with the best entrepreneurs I knew. Okay. And I also saw a split happening between how people are compensated, where I believed equity should be a higher stake of startup, early startup employees. So every client I mm. worked with, I took equity in their company. Um, and 
But we started actually 16 different publications at once. And wow. It was originally like, hey, we need a corporate blog, and we just want to publish these cool creative people. And then Hacker Noon emerged as like the most interesting one and the thing that resonated with people. And so we just kept feeding it. You know, We were making money from basically marketing startups and pouring it into Hacker Noon. Wow. Okay. There's a lot in there that I didn't, I wasn't aware of, and it sounds really <laughs> cool. So I want to back check a bit. Was your background always in marketing? Uh, so my degrees in school were um, in economics and creative writing. Oh, cool. So marketing kind of like people in marketing wanted to hire me more than I was attracted to marketing, okay. which is like how really when you enter the labor force, that's how it works. And so how did you get pushed toward tech companies and marketing for tech companies? Um, so I was a newspaper reporter in Lewistown, Pennsylvania uh, after college. Then I thought Lewistown, Pennsylvania, it's like a 15,000-person town. Uh, the whole county, I think, is 70,000. And there's not that much going on. It's like Friday night hangouts are like the major league bar, which like still has smoking to this day. You know, it's just one of those old bars in a small town and like Dunkin' Donuts. So there's just not many things. So I decided, I had friends in San Francisco. So I decided to move across the country. Um, and I had basically saved enough money for like three months of rent ish. Okay. So that was kind of my window to like, hey, are you capable of making money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, which I, I am. I that. am capable of making money. Yeah. you know, sometimes you don't know it, but it's true. That's the early roots of Era as well. Actually, it was like a three. It might have been six month runway. I'm getting fuzzy on it now, but it was pretty short time. Like, okay, well, six months happens fast. Oh my gosh, when you're trying to run a startup, yeah. there's no, yeah, it's nothing. The phrase is like they you underestimate what you can do in ten years, but you overestimate what you can do in a year. Yeah. Like a year can also happen really fast. Yeah, absolutely. So did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Why were you I did. I, I okay. grew up in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um so it's in Happy Valley. You okay. know, Mifflin County is the county. So you're about thirty minutes from Penn State and then the rest of it is mostly farms, a lot of farmland, a lot of rolling hills. It's like a ridge and valley region, so like up and down, biking is fun, lots yeah. of baseball, lots of football, So Very what was red. it like to move from sort of the small town feel uh -huh. to San Francisco <laughs> with a startup that you were trying to get off the ground in three months? Well, I actually ended up joining another company when I okay. moved to San Francisco because like I wasn't at the time capable of you know, having all the infrastructure and doing it myself, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know how a business actually worked, which I still probably don't, but I know enough <laughs> that it, like, makes more money than it spends, which is really the key to any decent business. Yeah. You know, you can, in the short term, you can always spend more money and lose money, but it doesn't work in the long run. Yeah. Okay, so tell me then um, that other business, that wasn't Art Map Inc. because no, that was so, what you founded, right? Yeah. So what? Um, um, so for three and a half years, I was at a company called Smart Recruiters. Okay. Uh, so they came to market with a free recruiting software and were trying to replace the applicant tracking system and all these big and small businesses. And that company, I joined, it was five people. When I left, it was about 130, wow. 120, 130, somewhere in there. So I saw this high growth Series A, Series B type of way to grow a company, um, which is very interesting. And it was, it was really rewarding, but... Um, you know, I, I've soured a little bit on like the structure of like Series A, Series B, because it seems to me these startups become a little too much like subsidiaries of the venture capital firm, mm. as opposed to a business that makes choices for the best sake of the business. So, for people who aren't familiar with uh, 
like raising money on that side of things in the startup world, what do you what what are Series A and Series B, and what do you mean by the companies becoming kind of beholden to these venture capitalists instead of their um, business? Yeah, so the as I, the way I understand it, the traditional Silicon Valley model is you'll go seed funding, then Series A, Series B, Series D, Series C, Series E, Series F, Series yeah. G, Series H, Series I, <laughs> Series J, Series K, and then at some point there's something called a public offering that really it should come after Series C after three rounds, but you know, companies just keep going. But yeah. there's, the deeper you, and I've, I, I say this from the perspective, the only money I've taken on, we've raised from our readers and we've done equity crowdfunding. I've never done Series A and Series B. When it's been other companies I've worked with, I have not been the lead on those things. You know, so mm -hmm. this is more my perspective from sitting in the back seat, okay. you know, as opposed to actually driving the car. But every time you raise a round, you basically give up 20% of your company and you have all these conditions attached to the money. Like one of the, one of the awful ones that any, anyone that's done it before knows it, anyone that hasn't probably doesn't know it, and it's the liquidity preference. They'll come in, they're like, oh, I raised a 5 million Series A, and they'll have a 3x liquidity preference. It's like, well, unless you sell that thing for $15 million or more, you're going to get $0 for all, everything you've done. So what is, what is liquidity preference? Uh, so liquidity preference is who gets paid first. Okay. So the venture capitalists will get paid first, and they'll put a multiplier on it. And so, so it's just referring to like preferred stock, common stock, that type of a thing. It's or? Essentially, if you can own more than twenty percent while owning twenty percent, if you have a okay. liquidity preference, if you raise five million dollars and you give a two x liquidity preference to someone, and you sell it for ten million dollars, even though you own eighty percent, you won't get a dollar because okay. their two x liquidity preference will come first. The venture capitalists will get paid first, okay. and then you'll be like, I built something worth $10 million. And yeah. you'll be like, well, your bank account's empty. Yeah. That okay. sucks. Okay. So then back to, from your perspective, people are raising money. They're not paying enough attention to liquidity preference, and what happens? I don't know, because I, I avoided it. At okay. that point, I was like, I don't <laughs> want to be involved in business like that. Okay. So I, I don't want to go too far down the road, because I didn't do it. You okay. know? But um, venture, there's a reason venture capitalists keeps having the returns they do. And a lot of it just come back to the terms. What terms do they actually set with the businesses they're working with as opposed to, hey, I, I can definitely find the next Uber. Oh, even if you find the next Uber, if you didn't put very much in it, it's not going to carry the whole fund. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, they're, 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 not, they're some of the smartest people out there. Venture capital keeps plucking, oh, you're a good entrepreneur? Why don't you come to the other side? <laughs> you know? so yeah. I, I think it's, um, there's a reason they keep winning. And so it's a good business to get into. I, it's just not good for my business. Okay. Greetings, hackers. We at Hacker Noon are continually thinking of ways of showing our appreciation for you, our community. Enter the Noonies. The tech industry's greenest awards. Cast your vote in Hacker Noon's first annual Noonies at noonies.hackernoon.com, where everything's democratic and your votes are the only things that matter. Voting closes on July 31st and winners will be announced on August 5th. Vote for Hacker of the Year, Most Exciting Startup, Contributing Writer of the Year in every major category. The list goes on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Stay tuned to noonies.hackernoon.com for the results and remember, you are Hacker Noon. So how did you move now from, um, can you tell me the story behind moving from the uh, recruiting company and now to starting Artmap Inc.? 
Um, it was, jump there. Yeah, I mean, I was a little burnt out, so it was three and a half years in, like, in a pretty high-stress environment and very difficult work, and mm-hmm. just creating a brand from nothing is like, uh, there's so many stupid little things you end up doing. Like, why am I printing T-shirts? <laughs> like, what? You say if you're wearing your T-shirt. I know. <laughs> why am I, like, running around everywhere? So um, I really didn't know what I... I just know I needed a change, you know, so, like, listen to myself, listen to what I needed to evolve and change, and uh, I just said I'll work... You know, I don't want to work for any one person, so I'll take on customers, and I'll uh, try and get the best entrepreneurs I know and learn from them as my customers. Uh, so that was kind of the model. But like, it was always more interesting to have a place where all like where the stories are actually the work versus the stories are the work to create the lead. So that it's a very different. It's simple, but it's very different. So having the stories be the work itself was. I saw the path I wanted to go to. So it was more like, how do I level off the customers I have and make it so it's enough money to function, and then every single month take less and less of that time and put it more and more into the publications. Mm. So that was kind of the the trade-off I made, which was. It's really like money's coming from one place. You're spending it on something else. Something else isn't making money yet. You believe it'll make money soon. So that was the the trade-off. And then it starts with selling some newsletter sponsorships. And then it starts with selling, you know, some top navigation sponsorships. Where this the the thing, just having your brand atop the thing is the thing that I'm selling, as opposed to let me see how big I can make your brand and your story. and eventually we hit kind of a sweet spot where Hacker Noon started to grow and we built what was called a weekly sponsorship. And it was very simple, co-branding across the top of the site. Um, and, and that's it, on Medium or was this somewhere else at that point? So it's on hackernoon.com, okay. uh, powered by Medium's technology, Medium software, um, which was a questionable trade-off that I made in working with Medium. Yeah, okay, so I want to hear about that though because at some point, so when you started Artmap Inc., you said you had 16 different publications, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all 16 were on Medium at that uh, point? Most or? were on Medium. I was running some other sites with WordPress and WordPress okay. is what I used uh, with smart recruiters and building their blog and uh, publishing with them. So, you know, I'm pretty familiar with both um, and I wish, you know, Medium continued competing with WordPress and put their sites on like powering many other people's sites and empowering many publications like mine and many others to start mm-hmm. versus you know trying to get everyone to publish on medium.com which is what they're doing today yeah um, okay so I I, I want to get into that but I still before we go too far astray from me just trying to understand sort of this marketing uh, business that you started I, I think that's fascinating I had no idea that Hacker Noon started out as um, like a marketing company, basically. So tell me. Well, it's more like a side project of something that made money from their marketing company. It was yeah. never like okay, the intention yes. that it would like exist Become and grow because it was like marketing something. Yeah. You know, it was more just like we created interesting things. Sometimes we created things that we didn't have clients for. <laughs> we just kept making them. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through because I'm I'm very unfamiliar with the world of marketing. Um, walk me through what kind of the the idea was for that point in time before Hacker Noon took off and kind of so I mean the bread and butter. essentially the early customers shaped the idea of the company because mm-hmm. it was like what do you want to pay me for let's talk it out and let's make a contract because a lot of my initial customers were basically people that wanted to hire me full time 
which I was unwilling to do. I just wasn't willing to go all in on some other person's idea at that time. So um, and they were wanting to hire you in the capacity of being a marketer, right? Not a journalist, not... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, that was the last job. But it was more like the metrics would be site authority, site traffic. So it's like similar to publishing of the challenge they actually wanted me to do. Mm. Like creating a name, defining what it is in three words, defining what it is in six a sentence, defining what you are in a paragraph. Like a lot of this identity stuff that's like, it is marketing and if you have good identity, it's much easier for you to go different places and market yourself. Mm. If you have strong identity, the moment you create a profile on a new site, people are interested because mm. your identity is strong and your identity is something someone can relate to and grab onto. Um, and it's also like a measure of how good is your brand around the whole web. If I just enter a new community as Hacker Noon, will people just follow it? Sometimes. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> you yeah. know, because it, how big is it? Is it big enough that it can immediately be followed? Uh, but the way I was structuring the contracts were basically six-month contracts. I just took the four-year traditional thing of a startup employee and cut it down to six months. Hmm. So the, the vesting cliff was once per month for six months. 20 to 25% of the contract would be in stock, and the other 75% of the contract or so was in cash. Mm -hmm. And um, we would agree on what we wanted to build, and I would work on it. So what kinds of things would you build? Um, so messaging identity, so we'd go through identity exercises of who you are. Um, then it was a building out your editorial calendar, building out your blog, coming up with your SEO strategy, um, coming up where you're going to publish around the web, and just the whole point was you know, scaling the narrative and taking your narrative from what it was to what it could be around the rest of the internet. So it sounds like marketing, when I naively think about marketing, I think about advertising as my first thing, as my mm -hmm. first thought, but it sounds like marketing is actually a lot more of a um, strategic exercise, that it's really more about strategizing. If you don't know who you are, it totally is. Because in the, whenever you're hired to a larger company and you're buying ad dollars, your job is managing an ad budget. And your job is to manage how many impressions, how many clicks did you get from the ad budget. Your job isn't to change what the thing is. Because you're already at IBM, IBM is IBM. You know, so you're not changing what it is. So with what we were doing, we were defining and changing who these people were and what their companies were and what their companies were going to do. The and early stage is it's a much different animal than yeah. you know, trying to just buy ad dollars. So, I mean, how do you do that? Do they come in with an end goal in mind? Like, our goal is just to make buckets of money. Our goal is to create this type of a technology. What, how does that work? Some, I mean, they definitely have their ideas in mind. And then there's like <laughs> a thing between like reality and where you want to be. And you need some quality dis reality distortion to get where you want to be. Like, you can't just accept reality for what it is, but you also need to be, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's just coaching and management of the peer person of like, I know you want to be that, and I know maybe in three years you could be that. What you are is not that. You have to be realistic about what you are and what you can offer someone today and balance that with like what you want to be. So, you, I mean, the branding exercises are somewhat useful, but a lot of it is just, I mean, I think a lot of the barriers for these smaller companies is they just need to find a way to keep telling their story and reduce the barriers of the amount of work they have to put in to publish. And then when they do that, they get closer to actually understanding who they are because they get to like a volume of content and a volume of data. And what do you mean by understanding who they are in order to publish? Are you talking about like publishing in big journals? And I'm outlets, saying or? like all their social media updates, all their mm. blogs, and then other people's blogs, and maybe getting to the bigger journals. Okay. But it like, I think the young entrepreneurs are better off publishing something small each day 
than trying to spend two weeks getting in the BBC or CNET or whoever their mm. target is. I think mm. they're smarter to just, how do I reduce the barriers for me to get something out each day? And each day I can you know, share more of my story and my ideas, and that will attract more people that are interested in those ideas too. Okay, so can you, I'm not sure like what your contracts and non-disclosure agreements might be, but can you tell me about sort of your favorite project from that stage in um, your business of like, okay, you took on this startup, you helped them craft their identity, you had a strategy for getting them known and out in the world, and it was fairly successful. Do you have an example or um, story for that? I mean, I wasn't like a hit venture capital firm. Like, I don't have any Ubers in my nine-month portfolio of this phase of my career. Um, but my favorite one was probably Teamable. Um, they were uh, Armenian. Three out of four, well, all four of the founders are Armenian. One's Armenian-American. So they're also a tale of, like, a country that isn't as wealthy rising up through tech startups. You know, and they ended up raising a five million Series A from one of these Silicon Valley firms. and. Uh, so they're in the employee referrals in the recruiting space, um, and just like really good people, like very smart, intelligent people. And there's no reason like this company shouldn't become much bigger. And I am a shareholder, small, <laughs> small, tiny shares. Disclosure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how did that work? They came to you and said, at that point, did they have an identity, as you've been calling it? Um, they did some. Yeah, we, we got better with it, and they're probably better at it now without me. I mean, it's been years. <laughs> so what was the strategy? I mean, I, I'm. Right. I'm, I'm here asking selfishly, too, because I'm a part of a small startup. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did they move from just being at the beginning and needing to hire a David Smook to... <laughs> um, well, see, that, there was, the interesting thing about them, and this is why startups are cool and also very frustrating, is I actually balance my time like marketing and sales mm. because of the necessity of the company. So it's kind of like there a lot of their challenges they needed big brands to sell against. When you're brand new and you're trying to sell something new, it's much easier to do it if Lyft is also using the software. And then you get Lyft and now you go after these other companies that are like Lyft. Mm-hmm. So their their challenge was kind of split um, you know because if you put too much on creation, identity, content, but you don't have someone selling against the content, the balance of the team is wrong. So in that case, you know, I stepped up and did some sales, not because that's what I want to do, but because that's what's needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And then come back to, you know, telling more of the story and working on a publishing calendar and stuff like that. See, so that whenever is- there's only five or six people in the room, if you identify one of the things you need to do is outside the skill set of those five or six people, it's best that you either find someone or one of you just steps up and does it. And, and if, you, if you're able to do that, the whole team is going to move forward. And if you're not... You're just going to have great marketing content and not enough sales. And if your product needs a salesman to sell, it doesn't matter how good the marketing is. If your product so, can be sold without sales, that's a rare thing. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, that's the paradox, yeah. though, right? I mean, how um, a, a mentor who's also a business professor um, was—I I was talking to him. He was saying that early startups often have what's called—he called it the legitimacy paradox, where it's like. In order for somebody to start purchasing your product, they want to see that you already have customers. But, yep. you know, it's like breaking into the job market. Everybody wants to see that you have experience. Well, how do you get that first experience? Same thing with sales and to yep. some extent marketing, because it seems like there's sort of these, um, 
I'm not sure what the right word is, but sort of this magnetic effect of once you've published, once you've been published about in some big um, journal or platform, then all the other ones will follow yep. like sheep. But how do you get your foot in the door? So Hacker Noon. How did you? Okay, Hacker Noon. <laughs> well, this is the perfect transition then. So tell me a little bit about how Hacker Noon started to take off among the 16 sort of publicate. Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to back up even further. Can you connect the dots for me? Like, I'm, I'm not really seeing how your work in the marketing space connected with these 16 publications. How did those go hand in hand? Um, the one overlap is we didn't have a corporate blog. So we're like, we're ArtMap Inc. Let's make something. Oh, the domain Art Plus Marketing is available. Mm. And then we're like, what do we put on our corporate blog? Well, let's just invite the best people to publish on it. Okay. And then we ended up publishing all these creative professionals, marketing professionals, artists, and like see what the name would attract. So it was, uh, I, were you trying to attract people who were trying to market their own companies with their own content? Um, yeah, well, we just knew like every site has a blog. We didn't have one. So okay. we kind of like came in pretty naive. And then... I mean, the, the other thing to consider, in the back of my head, I'm looking at like, okay, if I'm growing a business, what are my assets? Okay, if I have a marketing firm, basically the assets are the people. So this thing, the only way it can get big is if I employ a lot of people and I sell it to somebody else. Or I just have myself, I get my hourly rate up to $3,000 an hour. And I become such a rare <laughs> expert that I get this rate of $3,000 an hour. So the, all these labor-based businesses, it's like you do them, you, it's better to do labor to learn that you can do something that's not labor than to do labor for the sake of, to grow this business, you just need to employ more labor and try and get the margin between what you bill and what you pay lower, or bigger. Yeah, it's just not as scalable. Yeah, so that, that, that was just frustrating with me about my business after I went through you know, the first couple customers. It was just like, how can this thing get bigger and better? And the, the, the need is you need to own your own channels and own your own media, and that opens up a lot of doors for how do we be a small, super efficient company with a large voice versus a lot of people that their voice will keep varying in size because they, we don't have our own channels and we can't, tr we have to build up these channels every single time for each new customer, <laughs> which was cool to like start getting some things repeating and like see the patterns of how to get a site from zero to 10 and 10 to 20. But it's much easier if your site's already at 60 and you're trying to go to 70. Mm. Or maybe not easier, but it's, you're, you're deeper into the problem and the problem's more interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, this is, I mean, now we're going into the territory where I'm just intrinsically fascinated because it's, uh, um, this is a theme that has been coming up over and over again as I've been doing these podcasts. Um, this idea of kind of being your own platform, having your own connections, operating your own network. Um, so let's talk about that. And I know that that's sort of intimately wed with kind of some of the recent moves in Hacker Noon away from Medium and, and towards your own independent platform. So I also want to talk about sort of the reasoning that was behind that. Um, so first of all, as you, how, how difficult did you find it was? I, I guess I'm wondering, you had these 16 publications. Did Hacker Noon just obviously take off as the one that was attracting the most people, or was that directed on your part? Um, whatever worked, we fed more. So it became clear early that a few of them were duds. 
you know, and they weren't going to grow very much. But we also, it wasn't just like, we had another one called Extra News Feed, and we'd publish some famous novelists, we had published some fam New York cartoonists and stuff like that, and we, we had good grasp, but it was like, the traffic from Extra News Feed was very up and down. It was just like, it was the whole site was depending on virality, and virality is random. Not quite random, you know, you can get, increase your odds from random, like tr truly random, you can increase your odds, but you can't build expertise and site authority as you can when you focus on a subject matter and where expertise is so valuable, like in technology, how to build things, how to make things, why things are trending, that stuff builds on each other. And the more we publish about JavaScript, the more the next person who publishes on JavaScript is helped because yeah. of the community behind it. Um, and I also got personally jaded from Paul, because Extra Newsfeed had a lot of political stuff on it, a lot of satire, which initially I found hilarious and very funny, and it was a really nice part of my day to read it. And then the more politics became what politics are, the less I wanted to spend time on it. And the less I wanted to spend time on it, the less everyone else spent time on it. And the site just kind of didn't die, but just kind of went down, and now the contributors run it, and it's like, Kind of a it's almost like a support group at this point of like <laughs> political satire. Uh, but Hacker Noon, it, it was the best early, and we kept feeding it, and it clearly like you know I think even even when the other ones, um, even when we were still putting resources into the other publications, they peaked at like two million page views a month, and Hacker Noon was at eight. So it was still 20% of our portfolio was like this these fringe sites. Yeah. Um, and you know Hacker Noon was the the thing that worked. You know, you try 50 things so one works. When it so, works, don't abandon it. <laughs> how did you get the first contributors to Hacker Noon? Um, so I had a co-founder, Jay, and me who were both background in technology. So we knew tons of people in tech that were already writing a lot of blog posts. So say, hey, republish your post here too. Or here's another outlet for you. Um, then we also recruited around the web, including from Medium. They used to have a request a story function a few years ago that allowed contributors to control and choose where they wanted to publish. Is it not there anymore? You said they no. It's been dead for a while because they, they don't want people to publish on other sites like mine mm. and or other sites around the web. So it's, it's they've become a little more competitive and um, just a little different different company than they used to be. Okay, and then Medium was Hacker Noon on Medium from the get go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, we were on medium.com slash hacker daily. Then we, they, um, used their content management system for other domains and we moved it to hackernoon.com in April, 2016. So the, the majority of the life we've been living on hackernoon.com. Okay. Um, and you had mentioned earlier that you hadn't thought through carefully your decision to put your publication on medium. What would be your advice to, others who are thinking about starting a publication on what to consider when they're thinking about WordPress and Medium? What do you wish you had thought through? Um, to be honest, I wouldn't have changed much because when I started working with them, they were a different company. It was 80% different employees. They had different objectives. They wanted everyone to build their own sites. They wanted to empower this whole generation of new publications that could compete with WordPress. So. In terms of looking back and what advice I give myself differently, maybe just prepare for them to do different things than what they said they would do sooner. Mm. You know, because I started doing that, seeing the seeing how they were changing their behavior and just being different. Um, but in terms of someone starting a publication today, there's always going to be a trade-off between what initial work do you need to do to build, and then what initial work to build a community. 
So the simplest path to growing a community is using the existing tools and existing channels. So you know you want to have a large Facebook group or a Facebook page, a large Twitter community. Um, you know those things like you can start getting your content out right now. You can sign up to Hootsuite, schedule your next 1,000 tweets, and tell a full story of why decentralization is happening. And you can do that without create doing any infrastructure work, any software work, any design work, and only you writing and having a channel. So like, but at the end of that day. You can, it goes great, and you have 100,000 followers on Twitter, and you have none of their email addresses. Mm-hmm. You know, how good is your community? You know, how, how much can you say to them, hey, Twitter's actually screwing me, what should I do? Not much. You know, once that happens, your tweet's going to get hidden, <laughs> your whole community's going to get divided, it's going to change. So you have to be realistic. You're starting a publication now, you have to be realistic about what are your resources and where do you want to spend them, and where do you want to spend them over what time? Because if you want, WordPress or another content management system, which is if you want to be big, you need to, that's the minimum. I'm actually, I went even further. I was like, after over relying on Medium, I'm building my own whole content management system. Hmm. And I, so I like, maybe some people would argue I went too extreme and I tried to build too much software. But to me, it was the right choice because I'm doing something bigger now. I know what works with content management system. I know where we're wasting time in our content management system now. I know how to cut those things out, or at least I think I do. <laughs> we'll see if they're true. So I, I think it was a smart move for me, and it was also smart because you know I raised a million dollars from our readers, and I did equity crowdfunding, and I had the bandwidth to spend more money on software that I didn't have before. Creating two software development jobs, you know, you're talking about 10, 12, 15K a month, you know, if, if you're going to do that from your revenue, your revenue stream better be very good, and you're not going to kill any other jobs that are making yeah. the thing run. So so how are you making money before? I, I want to talk a bit about sort of your departure from Medium. How were you making money when you were on Medium? So we ran a weekly sponsorship. So you got it from Sunday night, 8 p.m. till Sunday night at 8 p.m. And at the top, it would be like Hacker Noon, sponsored by PubNub. And, and was it, PubNub funneled to you from Medium? No, all okay. the all the we build our own sales team, but mostly the best thing to get customers was their employees were publishing on our site. So we've published seven, eight thousand writers, a uh, little in that range. So we have pretty much, I mean, you name a tech company, I can grab an employee that's published on our site. Hmm. You know, so we in that way we're already kind of working for them because a lot of times they're talking about things they're building. So you know, you have this person at Amazon talking about it. Now we're talking to AWS or however the the system works. You know, so that was, and then we allowed brands to publish on our site, and that's something we now we now charge for. Mm. So in the beginning, we gave it away, and we said, "Hey, brands, you can Angelist, you can republish your blog posts here. You know, this is another channel. Look how many readers we got. Compare it with your own site. Do the judgment for yourself. Keep publishing here." Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the decision we wanted them to make. Um, and now it's a small fee if you're a brand and you want to publish. And that's the line we're drawing of: humans free, brands pay. And that's kind of the. Um, and then nonprofits and stuff like that will do exemptions, like and and. You know, so um, what was the question? <laughs> oh, good boy. Now let's see if I can remember. I, I was asking how you monetized on Medium. and it, But now I, I my understanding was that Medium was going to mess around with the way that you could monetize, and that was part of the reason. Yeah, so they said, you know, so we're on HackerNoon.com with Medium's content management system. It says HackerNoon across the top. If I said HackerNoon sponsored by PubNub, they said I can't do that anymore. And they drew a line of just like, hey, 
the, if you want a sponsorship on HackerNoon.com, you can't do it. And I was like, well, right now the Medium logo is all over HackerNoon.com, and it's just, they're sponsoring us with free technology and free hosting. And they had really no good answer for that, of why one sponsorship is allowed and one is not. And um, that's because they're pivoting as a company, and they want to do different things. Um, so, so we why? Evolved. Yeah, what's what's their reasoning in not wanting you to have sponsors? Um, they want to sell a subscription service on Medium.com to Medium.com, and they don't want to empower other sites to grow. That's really the core of this disagreement. It's just a different business oh, interest where they used to want to empower a lot of sites, get a revenue, get a share of all the money all these other sites made, and empower, build a whole better web, get this design all over in different places on the web. Now they want that web experience to be on Medium.com and any other site building like that, they want to shut down, essentially. So we're kind of like in this area of like past interest, <laughs> you yeah. know? So, um, so they're moving away from, they're moving away from scraping small amounts off the top of what you're making in revenue to now trying to create like a walled garden yeah, for all the content. Anyone that pays, pays them and nobody else. But they're still planning on having it being user-generated, right? I, um, I don't know. You'd have to. There's user-generated okay. and they commission content, so I don't know if they're a publisher or a platform. Uh, you'd have to ask them. Yeah, it's just bizarre. It makes me think of like it, maybe it's a fallacious comparison, but it's it, it would be like Wikipedia charging you to access content that they didn't create, even though it's just a. I mean, they did create the platform. I don't know. That's that's odd to me. Um, so uh, tell us a bit about then your decision to move off of Medium. I assume that... Um, so I didn't handle it great um, because I was content. I finally had built a solid revenue stream, you know, work on curation, editing, distribution, site growth, and don't worry about the content management system and worry about my customers. And Because the, 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 the customer model was great because it just lasted Sunday to Sunday. So, like... <laughs> It w the incentives for them to drive more clicks wasn't really there. Like the the impressions and the clicks just happened, and that was like the range. And I knew the percentage that would happen based on how much traffic I had. And we weren't looking to be this super high growth uniform unicorn. We we're like, oh, we create one job. Now we create two jobs. Now we create three jobs. And this is from the business itself. It's you know cash flow positive. Uh, but the move off. At first, we panicked and we tried to sell the company. And we looked around the web, and we see all these different solutions we could have. And we got, we got a really low offer for Medium. Then we got some more respectable offers that were closer to the value of the thing. But even then, it was like the writing is on the wall that the next step of Hacker Noon needs to be its own software. And no matter who owned it or what did it, if you wanted Hacker Noon to grow and you talked about it long enough and you just looked around at how this thing works and what it's dependent on and not dependent on, having its own software was the natural conclusion that pretty much everyone reaches in the long run. Um, so we decided we're the best setup to do it. It's better for us to raise money than to sell it to someone else and have them do it because we know how we want to do it. So then we were at the point where the medium dependency was either really good or really bad. People that love medium were very interested in talking to us, but people that actually understood, uh, I think actually understood how media was changing and how the use of the software was changing, knew that you have to you know, build a software team and build a tech team. Um, so with my wife, Ling, who's our chief operating officer, we decided to run an equity crowdfunding campaign, and we basically just put it atop our site. 
and we said, <laughs> here's what we're going to build. Here's the problem we're having. Here's what we're going to build next, and this is where we think we can go. And, you know, it's a 120-page document on the Internet, and the landing page is very long, has a video and stuff. And so we sold, you know, a decent portion of our company and raised a little over a million dollars from 1,200 people. Um, then we hired... That's so cool. That must feel good. It did, yeah. I mean, it was a grind because it was like all the traffic was coming from our site. Our most. It was our social media channels and our site. And so the funnel is, it's not like it happens all overnight. You know, you, th- you see some other crowdfunding campaigns. I know Mines, and they, they talk to the Mines guys, and they help me uh, with mine a little bit. And their did campaign. Did Mines crowdfunds? Yeah, okay. they did. Um, they did a different platform, but same idea, equity crowdfunding. But they did a lot more, like, they had some large people come in very early. You know, we didn't. We did get um, initialized capital that came in in the first week, and they did the maximum amount um, for an equity crowdfunding, and they helped get it going. But it was like a lot of it was just every single day we're driving like a thousand people to the page. Every single day from that thousand, so many convert and hit the button, and then so many convert and pick the next thing. So it was like. It was like, if you look at the rise, it's just like, do, 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 do. <laughs> it's pretty much just steady and up and to the right. It's not like, oh, wait, day over, fundraising gone. Yeah. Like, it ended up lasting like 90 days, you know, yeah. or something in that range. And yeah. It was pretty long. There's something to be said for that linear kind of persistence that happens when you just have that steady flow of, of real readers. Yeah. So that's really neat. Um, so tell me then about... You crowdfunded. What is the new vision? It sounds like... Medium was in alignment with your kind of vision um, of what you wanted for the web and for media, and that that's changed. So what should media look like, in your opinion? So where we're at in the landscape is a lot more, we're not trying to break news. We're trying to get experts to amplify their voice. So when people are doing cool things in technology, you know, research papers at Stanford, for example, yeah. like that's an interesting thing for us to republish and get very smart people who are building related things to read. That's much more interesting to me than say, hey, we're going to cover the next round of Series B funding and try and break the story before someone else and live in this embargo land mm-hmm. with reporters emailing back and forth, getting mad at each other for someone else breaking the embargo first. <laughs> like, that's totally not interesting. Yeah. It's just pretty boring. Like, I'd rather the moment uh, someone raises $16 million, I'd rather they go on to Hacker Noon and have their CEO talk about their technology. Mm-hmm. That's a much more interesting story to me than the headline of raise 16 million from X, Y, and Z. So, in terms of like, you look at it in the personal landscape, it's pretty simple. You tell your own story on Facebook, you tell your own story on Twitter, you, you, you get it. You know, you understand the reporter's not following you around looking to tell your story. You know, so then what does that mean professionally? Well, professionally, is always a little bit behind. B2B will always be a little bit behind B2C, and you'll see the way the consumers behave, and then you'll see the way they behave in their business. I, I think it be, works that way. Some people don't agree. <laughs> they think businesses are so cutting edge. But that means you know, you're telling your own story on your corporate blog. You're telling your own story on your personal blog. Now you go out, you're telling your own story on LinkedIn Publisher. You're telling your own story on Medium. You're telling your own story on Hacker Noon. So that's where, like, we live in this landscape. I'd rather get closer to expertise than getting closer to capturing someone's news and stealing their news moment. Mm-hmm. Like, let, let the other sites do that. Let them do it the way they want to do it. I'd rather get their expertise. And I'd rather them dig into why they're building what they're building or how they're building what they're building. And I think you look at how many te- technology professionals there are, 
every software developer can publish on Hacker Noon, every CEO can publish on Hacker Noon. I think for us, it's a more accurate way to reflect the tech industry by elevating 7,000 voices than mm -hmm. trying to have 10 reporters chase those, the companies that those 7,000 voices work for. So do you um, have to deal with people being concerned about like quality control? Because it sounds like you try to get as many people to publish as you can. Do you get pushback from some of your readers saying like, well, absolutely. you should publish absolutely. everyone? Absolutely, we make mistakes. I mean, because when we're at, we were at 20, now we're at 25 stories a day, and we have four part-time staff editors, and I think the future of Hacker Noon is community editors. Mm. I, I think getting, having the authority to, if you've written good stories on Bitcoin, having the authority to publish someone you know writing about Bitcoin is a natural extension that makes sense, and it's already like happening. Contributors, re referring contributors is the best source. Just like in hiring, where it's re like if you actually know someone and you're you're advising them to go to the site, mm -hmm. like they know quality control. So now and now we open up user types in the new Hacker Noon, where you mm -hmm. can earn your way to publish other people. Are you concerned at all with having um, community editors start to? I guess, bias the direction of what's being published on Hacker Noon? Absolutely, yeah. And we're, we're, it's something that's always going to be a give and take, and we're not going to solve it with any one system. Okay. Like, it's, it's something that we have to identify on a use-by-use -use basis. Um, Do you have any ideas in place already for how to address that? or are you um, Some, but none are live, really. You know, right now it's much more the staff editors are trusted. When the staff editors make a mistake, we deal with it on a one-off basis. Um, going from staff to community, I'm talking something that's going to take years. Yeah. You know, having an actual system where the community can, because community editors on Wikipedia, you know, it's a much different challenge just because they have one tone, you know, and it's tone deaf. It's like <laughs> supposed to be just a factual, it's an encyclopedia. Like if you yeah. do it well, it's tone deaf. Yeah. You know, like that's literally like, execution. <laughs> For us, that's like boring. <laughs> you yeah. know, so there's going to be a balance between how extreme, and you know, so we're coming out with a help section, so help.hackernoon.com, where you know, you can s have more publicly available information on what's allowed and what's not allowed. And the, really, the end game here is a governance. That, they, like, it can't, it has to hit the point where, okay, in this type of dispute, these five people look around, or these, these community editors vote. So it's working its way towards a governance, but it starts with just like the most common use cases and how they're addressed. But uh, you identify kind of with the decentralized movement, if I'm not mistaken, right? I, I mean, I love it. I think it's still 100 years away. Other okay. people think it's five. Okay. You know, so that's where I'm a little bit mainstream, which means like the main, some of the mainstream people hate me, and then some of them think I'm like, some of the mainstream people think like I can decentralize this whole thing tomorrow. And it's like there are, I wish I could. You know, there, it's just the, the the technology's not there and the incentives aren't there, but we, I think it's where it's going and that's why we publish so much about how to decentralize the web and publish so much about how do we get banks out of our lives. Yeah. Like that's where yeah. I'm, cutting out intermediaries and institutions that don't add real value is where I get personally so excited about the decentralized movement. Like yeah. some of the stuff that other people are excited about, I get it, but to me it's more like, can we cut out just the person who's skimming off the top if we can have just exactly what we have now, but we cut off every person skimming off the top, how much more money do we have? How much more money does every single person involved in the system have? You know, because yeah. if you can do that, you have something, in my mind, 
a lot of these systems aren't evil. They're just self-interested. And they yeah. see a moment where they can cut off the top of 20,000 people or 20 million people. And it's like one decision. Let's cut off the top of all those 20 million and look how much we got an extra 50 million. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's not that they're evil. They're just self-interested just like us. So do you see, I mean, you're talking about a system of governance. Do you see that as a means to an end or is kind of governance your long-term goal? I'm thinking about this in the context of decentralization because it seems like, yes, once you have governance, then you do start to get the self-interest involved. And so if you have community yeah. editors that build up so much trust with other community editors, then you might be looking at... Well, uh, yeah, Some there's there's going to be feuds. If people are involved, if people are involved and interest is involved, there are going to be feuds, and I'm I'm okay with that. I mean, when I started this shift away from Medium and thinking about how mm -hmm. how would I build my ideal software, I mean, one of the things I've just always kept in mind is how do I make my job obsolete? Mm -hmm. Like, I think it is a good thing for a CEO to work towards them being completely obsolete and the whole system works without them. And this is why Bitcoin is so amazing and why sometimes you get a little skeptical that maybe the thing is too perfect and it was a marketing <laughs> campaign to have the person at the top be completely anonymous. It's such a good metaphor for how decentralization can actually work, you know, that like the idea of coming up with it, that person is a far better marketer than me. Like, even if he was never had a marketing job or anything in his life, he understood one simple truth of how to make it much bigger was to completely cut off his head. And that, that was a very smart decision. So I, governance, I would like the government, the system to be good enough that it doesn't need me to resolve itself. And when it has a problem, it can solve the problem and move on. Yeah. Well, I think one good check on the system that you've mentioned to me is this idea that you're empowering these calls to action for individual writers yeah. and um, for creating their own distribution network. So can you tell people a little bit about what I'm talking about? First of all, just describe it. And secondly, your vision for why you're doing that and like the theoretically what the purpose is and where it should go. Yeah, so everyone that publishes on Hacker Noon, they own their own content. And they give us a non-exclusive license to edit and distribute it. And ideally, we just distribute and the content's good enough that we don't need editors. Editors are to raise the quality. Um, so at that moment, you, know, you look at uh, someone owning their own content should publish many places. Just as whenever you do a blog post, you tweet it, you go to Facebook. Now, how do you get it into more sites and more communities? You know, one way is to republish on a site like Hacker Noon. And then now that you own your content, what we've been doing to date is at the bottom of every post, we'll let them control whatever call to action they want. So now that we're designing it, we're putting it into their own software. So at the top of it, it's you know, author David Smook called action here by a top navigation sponsorship from Hacker Noon, in my case. In your case, maybe more sell your book, hire my firm, use my <laughs> software, demo my software, whatever the, you know, maybe contribute to my open source project. You know, whatever your, the call to action you want the rest of the internet to take should be atop your content. That's the simple realization of just talking to a lot of contributors. You know, because saying it goes on my site and you get paid an unknown amount at a later date, or you get paid no amount at a later date, isn't that interesting to me? And I think what a lot of top tech professionals want isn't that. What a lot of top tech professionals want is they want to use the internet to drive to one or two actions that they want people on the internet, relevant people on the internet to take. 
And so we're, we want to help them do that and help their content do that. And we think a lot of others, it's, it's a lot of the reason they're already contributing to Huffington Post, Business to Community, these other, you know, older uh, contributor sites. So we want to just put that front and center, get them to read more of their stories on Hacker Noon, and then drive the traffic out to the actual thing they want out, as opposed to, hey, we're going to put your little Facebook logo and your little Twitter logo, and on those two little icons, one person's going to click, and then they're going to realize they don't you, they don't want to friend you on Facebook, so that's weird because <laughs> you've never met. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think that's something that's pretty simple that... Um, we can just use the content to help them more. And that, that's something that I want to get towards. Yeah. So are you, I think a lot of times more, some of these more centralized services hesitate to do that because they're worried that that's going to lump off part of their readership or their yeah. own metrics. So yeah. And they should be because it will. Yeah. So how do you address that? Why are you not concerned, or do well, you just think there's a higher good here that needs to be served? I mean, it start, starts with the model, each page view I make money on. If there's a sponsor on every single page, every eyeball that's on there mm -hmm. is making me money. You're reading the content here, and then you go over there to finalize your decision on demoing their software, which isn't my business. You know, So I've already made money in the transaction. I'm already hosting your content for long-term traffic, and I know how to use that content to get more long traffic for the whole group. But isn't, uh, isn't, if, if other people, like, let's say that I'm contributing a lot to Hacker Noon, I've collected a lot of email addresses, and I have my own newsletter now, and at some point I either stop contributing to Hacker Noon or my readers don't actually go straight to Hacker Noon, they just are going to my email list, that means that those readers aren't actually making Hacker noon money anymore because they're in, in that case. Yeah, we could we could definitely, but for that time period, all the time you spent with Hacker Noon, we already made money. Yeah, and you drove some of your audience to Hacker Noon, and yeah. some of those audience will continue reading we'll Hacker Noon. Yeah. So it's a trade off where we're both we're cross pollinating. Um, yeah. I'm sure there there has been and there will be cases where the other side gets more, and there'll be cases where I get more, and hopefully, yeah. you know, you find that balance. I mean, at the end of the day, the contributor can take their content out of Hacker Noon if they don't like it. Yeah. If I'm not helping you, you shouldn't publish with me. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's plenty you can <laughs> plenty of places to publish around the web. You know, you can build your own site pretty quickly. <laughs> so it's a trade-off where the key is the the contributor owns all their own content. This is actually very groundbreaking and the more what ownership means the deeper you go the harder it is and I, I on this case i always come back to facebook of like you post on facebook you get 103 likes and 25 comments you export your data you don't get those likes and those comments hmm. so yeah. now it's like did you own it or they're saying the network effect actually created those 103 likes and those 25 comments the network effect does nothing without the initial story. <laughs> you yeah. know, so this model that like, hey, you can always export your content to the point of it working. <laughs> you can export it enough that it can't be export imported into a Facebook competitor. That's the level that they all operate under. So they can say you can export your data at any time, and you can export some form of data at any time, but what you actually get isn't enough to use the data and plug into a different service and get the utility value. Yeah. And do you think that there is a future in which that is possible? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 it, but I do think in this one I may be a little more, a little too radical 
that I think it's going to be the government that's going to open this up. I look at this next generation of tech companies more like what happened to AT&T, will happen to Facebook, as opposed to saying a distributed service will get good enough soon enough that they can ride, get to you know a billion users. Like, and I know that's not really the number that everyone, that's bigger number than most people are talking about. But if decentralized internet is real, you know, it's more like looking at getting towards Facebook numbers than it is getting towards a normal viral app number. But to me, that'll be more like, okay, the shift has happened. So as you're running Hacker Noon, is what are sort of the long, long-term visions? You've just come out of this period where you've shifted off of Medium and that's a lot, and I'm sure that that's consumed all of your time and attention lately. <laughs> um, but is there any kind of long-term vision for how you might pivot or develop your business once you get on your feet in this new there's a lot of ways it could go. So, like, I get a little skeptical of people saying, you know, we're this for that or we're that for this, and like saying their long term is too set. Because, um, you know, I'm much more someone that like iterates, sees what works, and then does it a hundred times, and then iterate and see what works and does it a hundred times, or has someone else do it a thousand times. Um, but we want to be the best place for tech professionals to publish. I think right now stories are kind of split up between personal blogs, LinkedIn, Medium, uh, you know, contributor networks, all this like Forbes, HBR, that type of stuff. So I think having kind of a place where you trust that like these are the smartest tech professionals publishing their stories, and then at that point it opens up doors of like. You know, you have the market network route of being more like LinkedIn for tech professionals. Kind of boring, but definitely possible. You know, and, and getting more money in the recruiting space, also kind of boring. But you see other sites are doing it that are similar to me or have some similarities. Um, the other route is this software works, and we give it away or sell it. And now there's thousands of sites that work like Hacker Noon does. That's one way. Or you know, the the highest ceiling way in terms of like money to the company is every single contribution on Hacker Noon is tied to a currency and then you earn currency based on your past and your future work on Hacker Noon and someday Hacker Noon now lists that coin on exchanges and goes across and you have the Hacker Coin or the Hacker Noon Token Coin. Token to buy it. Yeah, 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 and I mean it's, um, it's so many people failed doing it but it is a real thing of like if the currency has a value and you can measure contribution to currency appropriately, now you get in a spot where you're creating all the incentives to go towards the right direction of you know, more traffic, more words, more reading time. Because um, it is cool to think about like if you can truly design your own system, the, if you can get to the point where your incentives aren't gamed, you know, you have a really cool thing. So that's something, but it's like everything we're doing now, our software challenge is all, it's so much user experience based. And that's where we have to start. Like we're, I, the idea that a lot of these contributors, when we were like, we're moving off, they're like immediately go to cryptocurrency and have everything you write, every word is tied to an <laughs> amount that you can earn a coin. You know, or every minute reading someone, you can actually earn the, your, your, the an attention token, you know, like Bat and these other people that are trying for it. Yeah. Um, but it's just the amount of technical challenges that you go into it for one day and you can come out the other side. Like by the time we even get to the user experience, it's going to be 2025. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of in, uh, I mean, you're, you're a very influential person positionally at least, um, because you're 
sort of the you have information about meta networks at this point. You're telling me that you have ties to a lot of companies that have an employee that blogs on on your website. That I mean, that kind of makes you a superpower <laughs> in some ways. And my do daughter you, doesn't think so. She doesn't think so. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. She just like doesn't care about the internet. Oh. So she's two. Yeah. 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 Mm. She'll learn in a couple of years. To do we care want about her to it. though? Oh. I think if we don't, I think if we don't get our kids to care about the internet, we're probably irresponsible. Yeah, like teaching them like it's like the necessary evil. You know? <laughs> it is. Um, but but anyway, so you're you you sort of are like in this superpower position. Um, how are you planning on using that personally, if at all? Um, I mean, editorial and like judging what's next. Is yeah. a lot of you know authority in that way, um, and yes. trying to you know I want to get more artificial intelligence stories, you know I want to get more decentralized stories. I want to get more examples of people that are really just hustling, like people that didn't get to where they're getting from connections, and then they rise up, and that's a voice we really want to amplify. So I mean, the closer we get to an editorial line by merit. You know, and merit of content and merit to the technology industry. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's not it's not enough to say because they're famous they should be amplified. Mm -hmm. Like that that mindset is not good. But it's something that happens every time every time someone famous joins Twitter, their handle just happens to be available. Yeah. You know, every time someone famous joins Twitter, they it's just like this thing happens, and they're in the select section, and like suddenly they grow very quickly, and it's like. The whole thing is extracting their community. Tom Brady joins Twitter. We want all of Tom Brady's fans to now comment with Tom Brady on Twitter using Twitter. So th the moment Tom Brady joins Twitter, that's a great growth day at Twitter. Mm. They're all there celebrating because they get all these new users because Tom's fans all come in. So mm. that is a cool effect in terms of growth. It's a less cool effect in terms of like, do we want to be amplifying Tom Brady's voice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, so, but maybe not. That's that, that decision just never is crossing their minds. You know, yeah. that's not how their growth strategy works. So you actually, just a couple of minutes ago, were leading in perfectly to my next question because I wanted to ask, you are at this really unique vantage point where you can speak to the future. And one of the things I like to talk about on this podcast is where people think things are going based on their vantage point. So um, you mentioned AI, you mentioned decentralization. Can you talk about those or anything else? Like, what is your panoramic view of where tech is going? So, I mean, on the AI side of things, being David in messages and communication, the technology's almost already there. There's liability issues, but like, in terms of dealing with low level, not low level, but people I haven't met emailing me, why can't an AI handle that? The moment I decide scheduling, AI should be able to handle that. Never does. It's still me. <laughs> you know, it's still going on. But it's like that level of interaction um, is getting closer to how do I scale myself, and AI can start to do that. Mm. You know, and that Black Mirror episode with AI where they build an I AI just. Black Mirror. Oh, this show comes up so much. They, they build an AI just to optimize your home. Okay. And the idea is you know your home best. So if you make an AI that knows everything you know, and it just serves like, hey, when does milk arrive? And all this small stuff, it's like the yeah. best. But yeah. I, I see it more in like, AI, I'm really excited for extending messaging, you know, to some level of honesty or like realizing when I need to step in and when 
like, hey, that's how I handle that message every time, you know, that, mm-hmm. that type of deal. But also like measuring the quality of stories and measuring inbound submissions, you know, so right now you can do reading quality, you can do number of words, time written, you can look at all the links, you can do plagiarism tests, you can do some basic stuff, but getting to the level of like, can I have an AI read a story and it project how many people will wanna read the story? Hmm. That's something that like we could totally work on and we could work on today. We can't solve it today, but we can get closer to it. Um, and then the, the AI writing stories is getting a little scary. Uh, like, like scary good or, or scary uh, what? Just, yeah, scary just in terms of like, will humans write? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. is there a world where AI gets so good humans don't see the point in writing? So I think with like baseball stories and other sports, AI can get good because there's just not that many variations. Like yeah. when someone goes up to bat, they're getting a single, a double, a triple, they're striking out or they're getting hit by a pitch and then there's 10 different sentence variations for each one. Yeah. So that, that level of writing it can kind of do. Um, but I also get scared for like, will the next generation only be friends with AI? Like you see these five hmm. and six year olds talking to Alexa and you're like, I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, then on the other side of it, when I was five and six, if someone said to me, you could have a robot friend, I'd be like, cool. <laughs> Move out of the way, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can get on, on board with that. So, you know, as you're talking about this, it makes me wonder, often when people talk about um, AI taking over work, my Ooh. thought, and, and this could be, this could be... Um, yeah, it's real. Yeah, it could be a little... controversial, I guess, but my thought is always like, okay, well, I mean, it's just going to push the margin of what types of work we do so that we're doing, we're constantly on the margin of what AI hasn't quite figured out yet and kind of helping guide AI along. And I've never thought about that in the context of... I mean, with us already being in technology, I believe that's true. And we're going to scale ourselves more. But for the people that aren't in technology, for the jobs that are actually replaced, Mm -hmm. I mean... The skills gap, the training gap, the amount they have to do to get the AI to work for them. And then when AI makes breakthroughs, the way it's set up now is it's going to be the large company makes the breakthrough. Then they're going to implement it you know, across all these different situations. And the person that feels the breakthrough is not going to reap the benefits. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I think you see a lot of wealthy people in Silicon Valley trying to get ahead of it with open AI, you know, and putting all this money towards AI. And just they're planning the story 20 years early that they're on the good side of it, mm-hmm. you know, and whether that open AI did enough to actually change this or other AI initiatives, some of it doesn't even matter. Like they've already planted the story, they've already planted the seed and it's going to keep working. Yeah. So I, I think that those are good points. I, um, what I was trying to say is I think that it could be interesting. One of the things I've never thought about before is like in the context of language, um, maybe there's also this margin that humans can help direct an AI towards chasing. Like maybe there is a type of language that AI has, like as language develops, there's still a type of writing that can't be completed by AI since language isn't itself static and types of slang and types of verbiage that Mm -hmm. AI might always trail behind in the same way that AI might always trail behind technology as it develops. And that's not like typically, yes, I'm, I, I've always in the past thought about AI as, um, being able to replace a lot of 
at like manual labor type jobs or writing type jobs. Um, but maybe there will always be sort of this margin that AI pushes us to ourselves as humans develop new ways of movement that AI hasn't been able to capture yet. Does that make sense? It's yeah. kind of a weird thought, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I think the originality and the creativity of humans cannot be truly replaced. It, yeah. it, it, the, the, the humans are humans for a reason, <laughs> you know. And as far as I know, I'm not artificial intelligence, so yeah. that that part is cool and good. It's just the people, the people at the top are going to have different interests, and they're going to look at the numbers much mm. differently. As like, hey, if I can, you mean the cut, people who own the AI? The people who just own businesses. So okay. at the top, you're saying, uh, who's going to implement AI? I think a lot of those decisions are going to be much more like, hey, we can cut 100 laborers and have 10. Mm. And AI will do the work of 90, and those last 10 yeah. will do all the, the fine-tuning. Fine -tuning, yeah. yeah, and that's something that, like, I think will be happening. You know, it's, that's why I started with baseball stories because these baseball recapping a baseball game is pretty low level writing. Right. But it's still writing a lot of people read, and it's still more useful than a box score. And you can have a way to explain a box score. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember working on R in college, and R would spit out these massive reports. Then they would put language to explain the numbers that they have, and there it was much more like, you know. Uh, just fitting it in and like control F type of like yeah. level of technology. Yeah. But the idea is still the same that like stories can be told more and more often machines are going to be the ones telling the story. Yes. So uh, let's backtrack a bit. So future of AI, it seems like the immediate stuff that's going to be most practical is almost not exactly personal assistance, but as you called it, scaling the self. I think that that is really cool. I've never, I've never used that language before, but I think that's a good point. Um, that there are just some basic ways that us humans might feel more comfortable with AI auto-replying to certain things for us. Um, and that seems like a basic kind of next direction. You also mentioned decentralization. So tell me a little bit more about your perspective on that and where that is going since you also previously said you think that's more of a hundred year long-term game. Yeah, and it, it means something different to everybody. I mean, where we're at right now is too much of the internet is owned by far too few people, you know, because the internet is growing because so many people are putting their content, their voice into it. Mm. But how much of it is owned? I mean, if you look, if the internet was America and then you had like all the, the, the five or six large companies you know, the rest of America is owning, like, Portland, Maine, and the rest of it will be Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google. And that's even with all this money flowing into startup technology. It's just the, the graph itself is so skewed towards a few companies that it, it just can't, you can't have a sustainable, it's an oligarchy. You know, it's entering this area where it's just not a healthy e economy for most of the participants in it. So I think that is going to be a breaking point. And I think the governments, the governments, you're already seeing the EU being a little more forward with GDPR, handing out billion dollar fines to Facebook and Google. And it's still, the stock still goes up whenever they report their, report their quarterly earnings because they mm -hmm. have so many other streams. And so really it would be better if there were, competitive technologies that were decentralized and you could just take your information from Facebook and plug it in, or you could just take your information from Twitter and plug it in. But I think that's, it's just a harder barrier than the government actually breaking them up. So those two things, maybe they happen at the same time, you know, maybe they, they because it's going to take, to move 
people in power to not be in power takes a lot of things happening at the same time and pushing a lot of forces the same direction. It's not, if one person could do it, it would have already happened. You know, it's, it's going to take a lot of a perfect storm type of situation to open up the, this landscape of, hey, technology is something that democratizes access. It's not something that blocks off ways to make money for most of the population. <laughs> so I think in the end, what technology inherently is will help the people rise up more than it'll keep them down. Okay. And what about anything else? Do you see anything else as being kind of the next steps or big movements that could happen? Um, I'm definitely excited to not pay the banks. I know we've talked about this a little bit already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone who's skimming money off the top, I'm just excited to not work with them. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know exactly what that means in terms of it. Um, you know, the the... Yeah, it seems like decentralization, a biggie for decentralization will just be taking a lot of these common services like Uber, Airbnb, um, TaskRabbit even, and just being like, you know what, it's not that hard to cut out the middleman here once we have these so decentralized So those protocols. ones, a lot of those, the middleman is the leads. And that is pretty, that is hard to get, you know. So the reason people are going with Airbnb and TaskRabbit is the leads. They're, they're available to work today. They're available to rent out their house today. They don't have the whole infrastructure to just have all these inbound leads coming all the time. In but the isn't that somewhat, in. I mean, to create a decentralized marketplace doesn't seem like it's that difficult. Am I missing something? Um, I mean, I wish more existed, so we're, we're obviously missing something. You know, why, why isn't there a competitive Airbnb? Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So shout out to ourselves then here at Era. <laughs> I'm going to shamelessly uh, plug us here. We're building a decentralized marketplace for these kinds of things and have some kind of fun new ideas in mind. But, yeah, I think, I think that... Um, these, it, it is fairly trivial. The, the hardest part is building up that network. And um, I think companies like Facebook and Twitter and probably Uber, they haven't had to directly face this yet. Um, and Medium know that they want a like to stay in their system and they want a heart or a tweet or whatever to stay in their system as much as possible mm -hmm. because if you can somehow create a network off of their platform, which is really the only unique piece that it, well, I shouldn't say the only unique piece, but a very important piece to these platforms yeah. are sort of the contact lists that are I created. I mean, the, the encouraging thing here is they've given us all the model and they show us how the growth side of the network is, has happened. Yeah. You know, so there is like, not that you can do it, but you can see the way it's been done before and, and say you do have a decentralized Airbnb and you want to get enough leads, you can follow the growth path of Airbnb. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, that, that side of it is very encouraging to me that like, mm -hmm. but then like you're going to come back to problems they've had of like how to make money. And is, yeah. is your model sustainable enough? If you're getting 100,000 places rented out around the world and then you're making $10, you know, your system may die. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the challenge always with these decentralized or open source kind of movements is, yeah, monetization is a, is a biggie. And that's, I think, the only thing really keeping these sorts of um, developments at bay. <laughs> I think that Facebook and Google and these other big tech companies are kind of riding on the wave of self-interest that everybody is self-interested because our economics right now, um, it, it, 
We're in America. It incentivizes hoarding rather than sharing. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's kind. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right, well, cool. And, and so last kind of question in looking towards the future that I'm interested in is your thoughts on media, since you are in media. Do you think that established media is dying or changing? What's kind of next in the world of media? I mean, it's a pretty wild time because, you know, the social networks are still controlling so much of the news. And now the social networks are hiring editorial people, but they're not publications and they don't want to be taxed or So what do you mean they're, they're hiring editorial people? What do they do? Um... You're going to have to ask them, but, you know, they're, they're, they're looking. I mean, they have the low-level people who are basically red flagging and curating bad news from being amplified. And then you have the mid-level people that are actually trying to determine what trends and look at that. And, you know, Facebook had a whole trending section and got a lot of backlash. And these companies are just in a very tough spot because they go into one room and they argue they're a social network. They go into another room and they argue they're a publication. And it just depends on what legal battle and what story they're trying to tell at the time. And really, they just want to ride both. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to say, hey, we're just editorial or, hey, we're just a social network. And now at the same time, you have so many people getting their news from the social networks. So there's always a filter on every single thing they get. So that's extremely frustrating. And I'm becoming more and more bullish on old ways of the Internet emails, forums. We set up our own forum at community.hackernoon, like forums. Who would have thought making a big comeback? But it's like a real thing because that's how like a new, what people do when they first get a new technology, a lot of times that's what they do once the technology is matured too. Like they actually made the right decision in the beginning. The cool thing is I can go on a forum and I can talk to anyone else who's building a remote control helicopter. Couldn't do that before if I was building a remote control helicopter before forums. So there's cool things that like sometimes people were right in the early days and the idea of centralizing (laughs) all sources of the internet into your one news feed and then try and trust that the news feed knows you well enough and knows itself well enough that it's going to curate content that you like, it's not going to work. You know, so unless maybe you design the own, your news feed yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think we're going to have a lot more publications emerging, a lot more direct interaction with the readership. You know, there's so many URLs out there. There's so many ways that you could interact. It's a hard challenge because the social networks at bet are better at making things sticky. They've won the software design challenge. They, Facebook knows you need your first 10 friends to continue using Facebook. They're going to encourage everything in the beginning. Sign up. Try just, you can learn so much about software just sign up for Facebook for the first time. Hmm. Literally just try it again and see what they do and see all these actions they want you to take in the beginning. Every single one is designed for you to stay there for 10 years. And they're trying to get you to hit these different milestones that know you stay. And it's a great lesson in UX and it's also a great lesson in like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be the one doing this. Maybe other people should take these learnings and put it onto their own site. And I hope we live in more of a, a world where people are like, these are my 15 favorite sites, and I get my own curation, and I look off my... The, and they can have sites from all over the place, and it's a mix of Twitter feed, Facebook pages. It's not just go to Facebook and get your news. That That's where, like, really the entire... Facebook changed the history of this country. You know, that, that's how important they are as a technology company and a voice and a source of news, trusted or not trusted, or how much we do trust news and how much we trust stories. So I think media is going to be a lot more sites emerging and independent sites. I think it's too consolidated now. And I say all this knowing the most likely end path for my company is being scooped up by a larger company. And that's how media works, and it consolidates, and we've already had offers. It's something that media, more than other industries, they understand 
you can get deep in trying to figure out why why stories emerged or did not emerge or went viral or did not go viral and how competitors become friends and like it just gets pretty messy you know um New York, this one, I don't know why this came to mind, but New, the New York Times, they're, one of their biggest money makers of the last few years was actually investing in Indeed. There's like oh. weird circles of media that now like is the media a venture capital firm? And is that the best route for a media to grow? And then what is the self-interest? Yeah, that seems... That it gets pretty... It gets, some of that gets pretty ugly because it's like people don't understand how to capitalize on attention. So attention becomes this weird thing where the advertising model doesn't work, the reader doesn't want to pay for it, and if the reader does want to pay for it, like it's not, it's because it has an, it's hit a tipping point of enough goodwill because they believe they can usually get the content elsewhere, but they want to pay for it for the sake of like they really trust you and they want you to continue to grow. Which, if that's the case, they should be a shareholder, and they should trust that the company is going to grow more and they should be rewarded for their thing. Yeah, that's so. You know, that, that's where like funded by readership, I think, is good. You know, the yeah. readership is saying, hey, this is my product roadmap, this is my plan. Do you not want to just get this content for free? But if I make money on it, do you want to make money on it? That's true alignment of interest. And that's why I'm still excited. Like, there can be sites like Hacker Noon that are fully tokenized. And it's, I, I think that's totally within the realm of me or someone else to do in two or three years. You know, I think it's still very tough because. It's, the gaming incentives are very tough, and you're going to have to go through a million rounds of game theory to get to the point where the incentives are close to right. Right. And you so, can get it wrong enough to kill your whole site in, in the meantime. There's a, lot, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in what you just said, and um, I only recently have been learning a little bit about PR firms and how a lot of these tech startups go, they get venture capital funding, and then they have to go hire a PR firm because otherwise they can't. Have to. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but, well, okay, explain explain that. What, what do you mean by uh, your... I mean, well, in this... Your quote. <laughs> yeah, uh, the PR firm, I mean, they do a lot, a good PR firm, they're making introductions and they're setting meetings. That's like the core, and then they're crafting your story. That part of it, if the firm knows who they are, they sh the PR firm should be less involved. I mean, I understand the idea of paying for meetings. Like, it's hard to go out and get cold meetings. It's hard to get meetings with the people you want to meet with. If I can pay someone to get the right meetings, that totally makes sense. But paying someone to craft your story, negotiate with a friend, get the story placed on a site, like... Is that what's going on with PR firms? Oh yeah, that's happening all the time. You know, there some of it's relationship based, some of it is just I mean a good PR professional can also place stories without being relationship based. They tell a good story in the email, they make a good pitch, they make a good longer form, they convince them the meeting is worth taking or they provide the right quote. And those those, those things are needed. Someone has to message someone else if they have any interest in getting written about like that's not organic. But I mean, the best is definitely organic, telling your story, getting other people to talk about your story, and that's much more exciting for rising up. Like, and that, this is where podcasts are very exciting as well. As you know, I mean, you see Spotify buying up podcast companies left and right. You see Apple like so casual on their their market stranglehold, and Luminary raising a hundred million dollars, and their big offering is forty original podcasts. It's like you raised a hundred million dollars and you produce forty podcasts. Like, is that really like a big offering? <laughs> but it is because they're putting a bunch of new gated content behind the wall and the podcast medium. It allows a lot of smart people who get very self conscious about writing to get their voice out there. 
So, you know, you see people get less self-conscious about writing. But this also, for Hacker Noon, it was so important to the grow because the tech professional is so used to the keyboard. They're just so used to it that, like, if I say to them, spend an hour on the keyboard just sharing what you just built this week, it's actually an interesting blog post that a lot of other people in tech are going to want to read. But, you know, other industries aren't like that. They're not addicted to the keyboard like technology professionals are for the most part. So the rise of make, so for me, that was very good for getting a lot more content. But if you want to cover other industries, I would think podcasts are going to rise a little faster. And they've also risen fast in technology, so it's not like they're slow there. But it's just another way for people to be more comfortable uh, telling their story and telling... Because if you just say something related to what you're working on, you're able to go into detail in it. Anyone else working on something related, if they can just find that thing, you know, there, there's going to be a lot That's of value really gained. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So people telling their own stories. We want to level that up by about 100x and let you know the rich people deciding what stories should trend try and slow that down. <laughs> so what it, how, how would you advise, you have a good background in marketing and all these other routes of wisdom that you've gained just through your own network. What would you advise to um, people who are entering tech, maybe they're doing their own startup, how do they compete with companies like Facebook that have had the resources and the time to become incredibly sticky? And also then sort of this, the behind the scenes stuff that's going on with PR firms and um, just friendships that are influencing <laughs> what gets published. Um, well, you, if you're going to compete with Facebook, pick something absolutely tiny. Compete with them on one simple tiny thing of you could actually be better than them. You know, that's, that's a much better route than trying to go after these giants from uh, the up top and trying to say, we're going to replace everything that you're using Facebook for. That's just so much software. That's so much network effect. That's so much brand equity. You just can't, can't really do it overnight. You know, even I bring up Luminary on the podcast, only the people in tech know about them. They're advertising all over Instagram. You know, they're probably spending you know, thousands upon thousands a day doing that because and they're just burning their venture capital into ads, which is like probably not a great use. I mean, it happens a lot, but, and it's not that advertising isn't helpful. Um, but I mean, competing on the smallest actual function you can compete on is what I love, you know, because then it's something you actually can be better mm -hmm. and you're that function specific and then you can land and expand and get bigger and take on more of them. I mean, in terms of the PR stuff, the good thing is most of the job that they do is not that hard. You just have to consistently email, consistently follow up, make your pitches better and better. And if you know your product, you should get closer to making your pitches better and better. And you see people make the pitch 100 times, you know like early on in the pitch what they're reacting and not reacting to. And you can just see it on them. And then from there, you get better at it. So the PR stuff, I wouldn't be that concerned about if I'm a young startup. But it's also something where you're a young startup, you're pouring everything into it, and you believe this thing should be big. You're always going to believe you don't get enough coverage. So if I were you, I would sit you down and just be like, dude, patience. <laughs> like, don't worry about getting too much coverage right now. Like, it will happen or it won't. Or your, maybe your idea isn't as good as you think it is. But dedicating some time to telling your story outside the work you're doing is important. So if you're able to structure your day like seven hours of work, two hours of outreach, you know, and then, okay, one hour is sales outreach, one hour is story outreach and marketing outreach. So it's like getting that as part of your routine because a lot of the, especially the really technical engineers, they think they shouldn't be doing that part of the job. Really, if you're, if you're in a startup, I mean, it, a lot of it comes down to selling and making. You make something, you sell it. 
You make something, you sell it. You sell something, you make it. You make something, you sell it. And that, that cycle just keeps repeating. If you make it and you can't talk about selling it, you need a, you need a much bigger team. You, you're incapable of working on a three-person team if you're on the team and you can't sell it at all. Mm. You, know, you should probably work on a bigger team at that point. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be that worried about it. Plus, I think the more... I think the, with the, the internet being a lot more people telling their own stories professionally and that happening more and more, I think the PR firms are going to help out there. And you know, they're emailing me all the time, and the, the end solution is adding the CEO as a contributor and getting their story reviewed. Mm-hmm. And that's like a common practice where it's just like, I don't want to hear your pitch. No, I don't. No, I don't. Get it to the point where someone on your team is submitting. Okay, now we'll have an editor review. So like on my end of it, that's how I kind of avoid the problem. I push them to the solution I want, which is the leaders telling their own story on my site. Very cool. Well, David, thank you so much. I've really had fun in this conversation. There's been a lot of pieces of wisdom that I've personally taken an interest in and kind of in the spirit of everything you're standing for, hopefully other people out there are going to take an interest <laughs> in it too. Well, thanks for publishing on Hacker Noon. I'm yeah, really happy I love to do it. this. I love it. It's a treat every time. So thanks. That was David Smook, CEO of Hacker Noon, appearing on the Kazell Report with Amber Kazell. You can find her podcast at www.kazellreport.com slash podcast. A simple Google search of David Smook will find you Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Hacker Noon, the gamut. More specifically, you can find him at hackernoon.com slash at David Smook. One last thing, a special shout out to Alpaca Hack Financial Systems for sponsoring our site at Hacker Noon. You can find them at alpaca.markets. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can find the Hacker Noon podcast at podcast.hackernoon.com and keep up with what's going on in the community at community.hackernoon.com. Until the next time, I'm Derek Bernard. Thanks for tuning in.